for the gift of our life from you. Um, the warnings, are you on? The warnings, the last few days have been serious. Um, the words to us um, have been, um, if your leg gets in the way, if your hand gets in the way, if your eye gets in the way, pluck it out. He's saying, if you think about it, we use our hands instrumentally to get things. We use our legs to get somewhere. We use our eye to see something. He's really, he didn't, he didn't leave anything out. Hand, eye, hand, um, foot, eye. He's saying that in, with so many of the powers that we have, our eyes to see, our hands to, as instruments to do, our feet to move, to get us somewhere. If any of these things so attach us to the world that they keep us from Him, it would be better to cut off our hands or pluck out our eyes. Um, it would be better um, to go lame into heaven because in heaven, you know, there won't be anybody lame. You know, all the imperfections will be overcome. But it would be better to enter heaven lame than, um, than to go into Gehenna with these faults. So, two, two prayer requests. One, help us to take seriously your words to us. Um, we don't know when the day will come. You have said that over and over and over again, um, and recently too, and warned us. We don't know when you're coming. We don't know the day. And the other thing, I'd, so I'd like to pray that all of us um, take warning seriously. Um, we hear them in our heads, carrying them to our wills is <clears throat> another thing. So help us to carry them to our wills. And um, I ask for a special um, grace for all of us to be strengthened in our faith. Christ has been very clear in the last week as well that um, Remember, he blighted the fig tree, and Peter was surprised on their way back out of the town. He, he pointed it out, and um, Christ said, um, I think with some irritation, he's gotten angry at the disciples a number of times um, about their lack of faith. Um, he's very clear, and he's disturbed because he keeps doing things. You know, even after the miracle of the loaves and fish, they're asking for signs. Um, my God, what more could you ask for? Um, he's um, chiding them, um, rebuking them for their lack of faith. And he says, if you had faith, you could move a mountain. Christ isn't given to rhetorical overstatements. That's not what he does. And I think he's trying to impress on them. They can cast out demons, my God. Demons, the angels, fallen angels, with all the horrible things that they can do, if they can cast them out, they ought to be able to move a mountain. Um, so it's a serious question. I, I, I hope I'm, I think I hope I'm not just speaking for myself. That the more I think about it, the more I realize how much we take our faith for granted, and what could happen if our faith were more complete. If our faith were, we we still have to go through the motions. If our faith were stronger, what would it do in our lives? Um, how would it change our lives? So, 
I ask a blessing on everybody that all of us be strengthened in our faith to become more whole. That's what you call us to, um, to be holiness, to, to not let. We're so capable with our hands and feet and eyes. We're so capable in our world that so often we trust in ourselves to get things done um, and then something hits us and we're floored. It could be pneumonia, you know, whatever happened to me. It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be an illness. It can be a crippling. It can be a loss of a job. Who knows? Help all of us to take seriously um, your asking us to grow in our faith, to, to make that more a part of our lives for everything that it will do to help us in all that we do with each other, in all that we do with our friends, in all that we do with our work. Um, help us please to do this. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Um, Last week when we when we met, I, I was just a sort of preliminary to Hamlet. I um, um, I don't know what's going on here. Sorry. Um, um, I said that we'd probably do Hamlet in two weeks, and that may have been a little bit too cavalier. I don't, I don't know how you guys are finding it, but I've started reading it again, and I told you I wasn't going to do no preparations. I lied. Um, or I didn't live up to my word. I, I ended up doing some prep tonight, um, but I was good. I mean, I, I didn't do what I ordinarily did, so even if I failed in some ways, I, um, I just found it really hard to go through Hamlet in my mind because I, I think I know it fairly well because of its complexity. So let's see, we may do it in two weeks. Um, there's a good chance we'll do it in three. If we do it in three and my mind is in that direction right now, what I think I'm going to do is this. I'd like to cover the major outlines and leave the end of the play up in the air because I think what happens at the end of the play is astonishing and, and so far as I know <laughs> no, but I don't know of anybody who reads it well. You know from our words last week that so many critics take the ghost out, so many psychologists, so many critics don't deal with the supernatural. But the supernatural is present. I don't want to give it away. I'm going to come to my question to you guys in a minute, and, and the question is going to be a very serious one. It's going to test you guys. It's going to really test you guys. Um, what I'd like to do is leave the end until the very end but cover as much of the play I can as I can and then go back and treat some of the minor things a little bit more carefully. So for instance, I'd like, you'll see, we'll get through hopefully a good part of the first half of the play. But to do that I have to ignore people like um, um, Laertes, Polonius' son, and Ophelia. And Laertes I, I can deal with shortly. Ophelia to me raises all sorts of questions. She's a lovely young woman. She goes mad and she takes her life or gives her life up. And I don't want to pass that by. I, 
it's a minor thing relative to the other things in the play, but she takes her life. She's a beautiful woman. Hamlet loves her, although he excoriates her. I mean, um, is is full of rage at her because of the way she's allowed herself to be used. Says, get thee to a nunnery. We'll look at the passage. He's really angry at her. And I, I think, in some ways, rightfully so. Um, um, but I don't want to ignore that. And my belief is that once we do the major, once we cover some of the major lines of the plot, um, I can go back and we can look at somebody like Ophelia a little bit more closely and, and take some time and ask, what, why does she do that? What light does she throw on major problems? She's a daughter. We've got two major family relationships in the play. Hamlet with his father and what his father asks of him and that old honor code and Polonius with Laertes and Ophelia. And Laertes is not the best of fathers. He puts a spy on his no, son. Polonius is not the best of fathers. He puts a spy on his son and he uses Ophelia to spy on, um, on his daughter. And he does it all in the interest of state. I'm, I'm going to hit this home right now. I'm going to give part of it away. I don't know that I should do this, but... He's a man who's so committed to his job that he compromises his relationship with his family for the sake of that job. He makes it clear to Claudius, the, the king, that whatever the king asks, he's going to do. So here's a man who makes the state, political power, more important than his family. Now, I, I, I'm assuming I don't need to ask this question, but do we have to look very far for political figures who live lives like that, who make politics more important than the love they're asked to show to their family? Is everybody following me? So there's, a, there's something going on, and the cost of it is a failure. She'll die. Um, and, and so what I'd like to do is cover the main lines, and then as we move towards the end of the play, I'd like to go back and look at some of the things like that. Here's a young woman, a daughter, who's going to lose her life. And there's a deeply Christian sense to her. You even know, if you've read, you know, there's a question of whether or not she should be buried in Christian grounds because she's a suicide. So it's raising all sorts of questions that go directly to our faith. And I, it's not a major line, but my belief is that if we can go back and look at things like that, it'll help fill out what to me are some of the major things that go more directly to our faith, okay? So two weeks, possibly three. Probably three. <laughs> Given the way I can't contain myself. So, okay. Um, that's the first. So, um, we'll see what happens. Before, before I ask my question, I want to just throw out some things for you to think about um, and keep in mind that, that aren't directly related to the play. They don't emerge from out of the play. But, um, but I think they're important for us to keep in mind. So I'd like you all to keep these things in mind, okay? As you read the play. Um, we've been talking about works that in lots of ways don't directly deal with our faith. Lots of them have. And you know that my question has always been, where's Christ? Is he at work? If, if so, where? 
this play does that more than any work that I know of that we've done up to this point. Okay, um, so I'd like everybody to keep these things on their mind. One, in, one of them is, Christ says, be alert, watch and pray. Watch. That's one of his admonitions, watch. What are we on watch for in this play? What are, what are we being asked to see, to be on guard against? Christ said, be as gentle as the serpent, and as, or gentle as the dove, and wise as the serpent. Behind that is the assumption that it's important for us to know our enemies. Yeah, as Catholics, I think probably more than other religions, we're asked to deal with evil, to take responsibility for evil. We've got to know our enemy. And I think sometimes that means us, because sometimes we are our own worst enemies. So when he said, be as gentle as the dove and, and as um, wise as the serpent, and we're asked to be, um, to be on guard against evil, what's going on in this play that's not good, that's evil? How many, how many characters are aware of it? And are we aware of it? We're going to go to a passage pretty directly in a minute. I'd be surprised if you see the evil <laughs> embedded in it, but let's see. I mean, you may, you may surprise me, but at the opening of the play, we're going to see a, an evil so subtly masked, so covered up, that I think most people don't see it. So as we move through the play, are we sufficiently aware of what's wrong? What's wrong? Um, the last thing is, last week I reminded everybody that literature... <laughs> and I've been saying this forever, literature offers us a special kind of knowledge. It's knowledge as experience. It's not conceptual knowledge. We're not removed from the world to think about it. We actually return to the world, enter into it, and participate in it. So as we read through Hamlet, we're going through that action with him. Yeah? We identify with him. I think we feel sad, I think. We feel sad when a, um, a filia dies. Um, I get outraged at Polonius as a father, and I, I mourn, at, and it's funny, I'm going to give myself away, I mourn and I'm glad at the end. And that's when um, Hamlet's going to die, Claudius is going to die, the Queen's going to die, Laertes is going to die, there are going to be deaths everywhere. Um, we're going to feel those. So, remember, um, in literature, we return to the world to participate. That means, in some ways, we're being asked, whether we're conscious of it or not, to see if we can find ourselves, learn to see ourselves in the characters. In a sense, literature is therapeutic because we learn to see ourselves in what people do, but we don't have a therapist directing comments at us. But it's a serious question when we read literature, do we, do we really learn to see ourselves in other people? I've gone so far as to say to you when we did Othello, because it's a serious thing for me, do, did we learn to identify with Iago? Iago is the most evil character I know of in all of literature. And, and I'm saying, I think we're supposed to ask ourselves, do we see ourselves in him? By the way, did you guys get my Othello paper? Yeah, I'd love by write me when you get it. I'd like to hear your what your thoughts are. But it seems to me, 
if if I mean I don't want to go back there because some of for some of you this is I'm Chuck and Lori um, you weren't here when we were talking about it but um, one of the arguments that I'm making in that Othello paper is that Iago is an image of something going on in the commercial republic that's us and he's he's able to work on people the way he does because they share in that identity do we learn to see that part of us that's like that it's one of the things that literature offers it's not just for entertainment it's a mirror it's being held up can we find ourselves um, so here are the two questions keeping those things in mind that I just asked you to go directly to the comment I just made um, in what way is America like Denmark <laughs> how's that Denmark's not a commercial republic it's a monarchy it's ruled by a king but it's a totalitarian monarchy Claudius has absolute control I'm not kidding about that he gets everybody to work for him Polonius Rosencrantz and Guildenstern he uses everybody it's a totalitarian regime he has total power it's one of the reasons it makes things so hard for Hamlet in what way is America like Denmark Denmark is called a prison these are words from the text Hamlet said there's something rotten in the state of Denmark Denmark is rotten he's and when he talks with his friends about it they say all all regimes are rotten Hamlet says yeah Denmark's worse it's called an unweeded garden in what way is contemporary America rotten an unweeded garden a prison in which people are driven indoors because of political problems so my first question is in is what way is America like what do we learn about ourselves from reading this play about Denmark it's not a commercial republic but it's showing problems with human nature is there any way in which we share those same kind of problems that's the first question the second question is this you know that at the outset the play the action of the play centers around the ghost it's what sets the play in motion the guards see the ghost they're unnerved they finally report it to Hamlet Hamlet comes back and he he goes off with the ghost and the ghost reveals what happened to him it, was the old King Hamlet who was killed by his brother Claudius um, and the ghost leaves Hamlet with a charge a quest he says avenge my death remember me so the play starts with Hamlet having to pick up something he inherited from his father he has to carry something on old Hamlet belonged to that old honor code that, that we first experienced in Achilles right that honor code somebody kills you you avenge that death you have to answer it the father says avenge my death the problem is that Hamlet's a Christian he's actually Catholic he knows from the Bible from Scripture that vengeance is God's God says vengeance is mine we're not supposed to take vengeance we're supposed to enact justice <laughs> I'm probably more sensitive to this than you guys are but I would say probably 85% of things coming out of Hollywood have to do with vengeance it's rare to see anything coming out of Hollywood that, that 
that takes a stand on justice, that, that a crime has to be answered, but not vengefully. Is that, ser is that clear enough? Can I leave that, or do we need to take a minute with that? Vengeance means there's something personal, that you're, some resent, something of yourself that you're allowing to get in the way when you're asked to step back. The ghost is saying, avenge my death. He was wrongly murdered. He should be, he should, that injustice should be answered. When Hamlet picks up the, get, the quest, it's to avenge his father's death, right? Here's my question, and I'm giving it away the play, and you know how much I hate doing this. I never do this. I do not like doing it. I'm doing it because I'm, I've got to get to a larger point. Here's my question. At the end of the play, Hamlet will kill Claudius. The quest will be answered. My question, and this is going to be, I'm giving you guys a test. Third week, expect a test. Um, is, is the spirit in which Hamlet kills Claudius the same spirit in which he received the quest from his father? Now I'm going to go back for a second. Remember when we did Boethius, that's, that, that book was central to all of our work. That, that was one of the most important works we've read because he gave a philosophic argument for our faith. He showed the, he gave, he showed the importance of reason underlying our faith. And he made the case there that God has created this order, that justice is important, and you know, we went through all those questions about predestination and free will. But at the center of the, is this point that he's making that God is always at work bringing good out of evil. Because the basic question that the, the work started with was, remember Boethius was in jail and he was going to be executed wrongly. And he asked this question, why do, why do evil men prosper and good men suffer? That was the fundamental question. It was the Job question. Why does God allow that to happen? Kind of a good God would do that. So we have every reason for getting angry at God, assuming he's bad. Boethius shatters that. He puts it all to rest in his arguments. The conclusion is God is a good God. I'm not going to go through the arguments again. We've gone through them, but you know that the conclusion was God is all, he's nev God never sleeps. There's no day and night in heaven. He never sleeps. He's always at work. The question is, do we see him? That was an issue for our faith and our reason. Do we see him at work? That's the fundamental question I'm asking of Hamlet. Do we see God at work in this play? When Hamlet kills Claudius at the end, has anything happened to change that spirit, or is it the same? Is everybody following? That's the question I want to end the play with. Is God at work or not? And if so, where? Because otherwise, we've got that old code of the Father continuing into the present and the future. That old way of doing things. Let me stop. Is that, is that clear? Those are the two questions. In what ways Den is America like Denmark or Denmark like America? And is the spirit in which Hamlet receives the honor code in the beginning the same when he kills Claudius, or has it been changed? Has something happened? Is God at work in this play or not? And you know that from our brief talk last night that one of the things I'm claiming is, is that most of the critics who deal with Hamlet don't deal with these questions because they don't deal with the ghost. 
and not dealing with a ghost is insane. You, you don't have a play. Take the ghost out and you don't have a play. They don't deal with supernatural things. And in that sense, they miss the most, I'm, I'm claiming, they miss the most important things about this play. It's one of the most extraordinary plays ever written, and it goes to the heart of these questions. So those are just opening comments that, you know, that don't directly deal with the text, but I wanted you guys to have these on your mind when you, when you read, okay? Let me stop. Any, any questions about any of that? Chuck, I'm going to be disappointed if I don't hear a question from you. It's been it's been a year since I've heard from you, so I'm going to work hard to make sure that it's um, that it's an intelligent question. Okay. <laughs> I I don't think it would be anything less if it were coming from you. Um, anybody have any questions? Kay, did you have something? No, no. Is everybody okay? Can we? Okay, okay. Um, what I want to do quickly is review what I set out last night because it's the background for the play. So we're still one step removed from the play. One step, but um, we're getting closer. Remember last week that I said that um, Shakespeare lived at an important time for us because he lived on the threshold of modernity. He lived when two two of the revolutions that shaped the thinking of the modern world took place. Yeah? The scientific revolution and the reformation. It's not, I'm not exaggerating to say most serious Christians, most Catholics, most Catholics, I'm not sure that, the reformation thinkers wouldn't because they believe since the reformation that they've taken the right steps, that the Catholics are out of tune. So they wouldn't think this way, but most Catholics would say, serious Catholics would say, that in the 16th century, Christendom experienced a shipwreck. It, it fell apart, um, that it just broke into fragments. Chesterton says that, Lewis says it, um, Belloc, I mean, just lots of Christians would say. So for four centuries, we have been experiencing the results of that collapse, that shipwreck trying to put things back together. So Shakespeare lived at a time when two revolutions took place. One of them was the Copernican Revolution. Um, Copernicus wrote his, published his work in, I think it was 1545, somewhere in, in that period. And the Reformation took place um, close to that time. So two very different ways of looking at man um, affected everybody. It, it raised questions, it forced people to not take things for granted, they had to question things again. We've talked about this a number of times, a number of times. Um, according to the traditional religious way of looking at the world, the one that Shakespeare grew up in, um, man was made in the image of God, he came from God, he didn't create himself, he was made in the image of God, and his ultimate end is to return to God, to be with him. That's his home. This is not our home. I've been saying that from the beginning. If we ever get so attached to the world that we think this is our home, in some ways we're lost. We're on an adventure. We're, um, uh, um, St. Augustine called us a peregrine people. We're on a journey. 
The church is the image of that journey. That's why it's so close to home to us. It's important. It keeps us moving to Christ. Lose contact with it, and there's a danger that we'll get too settled in the world. Um, so, according to the Christian tradition then, man was made in the image, he came from God, was meant to go back. The church was important because it carried on the work of Christ. The sacraments were important because it carried on the sacramental work that that was existed before he came and that was changed through him, particularly you know, with the Eucharist, to take just one of the sacraments. Um, in the Reformation, that a lot of that was changed. According to the Catholic view, the traditional view, man lived with free will. One of the struggles in his life was to pull faith and reason together. You know that one of John Paul's most important encyclicals was Fide e Ratio, Faith and Reason. The great call by John Paul was to for us to continue our work to bring faith and reason together. I believe that the great battle for us in the modern world at this time is to recover reason because so many people use it badly. If we, if we, if we don't use reason well, we take away part of the ground of our faith. Um, Luther and Calvin, the two major reformers, denied man's free will. They said he didn't have free will, and they both denied the sacraments. Luther denied the sacerdotal order, the priestly order, um, and he changed the Eucharist. He made it consubstantial, not transubstantiated. I, I don't want to go into that. If you guys want me to pick this up another time, I will just ask me. But, um, but one of the most important doctrines came from Luther, and it was that the most important thing for a Christian was his personal relationship with God. That was not a small thing for Luther. And on the basis of that, he said that it was more important than the sacerdotal order, the priestly order. So it wasn't our obligation to give our obedience to the church. Our faith raised us above that. So a personal relationship could lead us to do things that the Catholic Church would disapprove of. That was okay for Luther. Those of you who've read Scarlet Letter, Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, will, will know that that's fundamentally what the Scarlet Letter is about. In, in the Scarlet Letter, the pilgrims come here, they, they are all basing that theocracy, this new city that they're going to found in America. That's the beginning of, the, of America. They're going to found it on faith. And immediately when they land, they immediately have problems. If you've read the Scarlet Letter, you'll know it. Anne Hutchinson found herself at odds with the community because she, she lived that principle. She said, living by the Holy Spirit, moving according to him, puts me at odds with you guys. The church took the position, the, the Protestant church, the beginning church, took the position that you showed your faith by being in conformity with the church's practices. So you've got these two antithetical positions. Faith is shown by your conformity with the practices of the church, its moral codes. That was the, the church, the church, the community at large. Anne Hutchinson said, no, you can't conform to those standards because faith is above them. So immediate, and wait, by the way, is, are things any different today? The modern American world is based on conformity to the social courts or 
defiance of them. What we call a adversarial culture. It's an adversarial culture that says, I'm not going to go along with you guys. You're all hypocrites. <laughs> the problem in that form was first set out by Hawthorne and Melville. We're going to, if we all stay together, I, and that's where we're going to go after Shakespeare. But So you've got this conflict in the 16th century between the Catholic Church and the Reformation Church. Two very different views of man. According to one, man was fallen. Oops. According to one, man was fallen. Oh, God. According to one, sorry, my, my screen went blank. Um, according to the other, man was fallen. According to the other view, man was fallen. But the understanding of that fall was radically different. A Catholic says we fell, but we weren't depraved. Our, our inherent goodness carried over, but was wounded. The reformer said, no, the fall was complete, and we were left depraved. We had no free will, no goodness in us. There is no goodness in nature. We're depraved. So two radical views, one much darker than the other, one denying man's free will. Okay. Now, science, science, this is a little bit harder, but I'm, all of these are generalizations, so I, I hope you'll receive them that way. Remember, up till Shakespeare's time, um, the scientific view in, in, in effect there that was established then was Ptolemaic. It was a helios, um, geocentric view, believed that the earth was at the center of things. Now, th this is what's important to remember. The earth is at the center of things, and that's where death is. When you go out to the planets, you go out to things that are fixed. There is no death. That's why the ancient gods were identified with the planets, Mars, Jupiter, Venus, right, all of them. So you could know those planets because they were unchanging. In Earth, since everything was full of decay and change, you couldn't know things and man was going to die. When Copernicus changed that and he said, no, this, the Earth is not at the center of the universe, the Sun is, he, that's the beginning of what we know as the heliocentric universe. There were people who believed that before, but it was never proved the way Copernicus did. Earth took its place among the planets, and when it did, it meant man could be studied because he was a part of those things that were ongoing, that were eternal. Um, now, at that, at Shakespeare's time, we know this, remember from uh, Much Ado About Nothing, remember when Helena cures the king? Um, Lefew says, the age of miracles is gone. The age of miracles is gone. Because once a scientific view takes hold, it assumes that all things are determined. That's the way they were, that's the way they are, that's the way they'll always be. That's Freud, that's so many modern scientific theorists, that all things are determined. Man has no free will. Um, he's a product of forces over which he has no control. So in Shakespeare's time, man came from somewhere. He came from God. He was going. In the modern world, we don't know where man came from. It can't assume God. And you know from so many modern theories that we don't know where man comes. If, if, if everything's explained by the Big Bang, you know, we don't know. He's a product of accident. So in the modern world, man's a bundle of nerves, of desires. He can do what he wants, he can will, there's no moral order, there's no metaphysical order. Um, he can do what he wants. 
um, he isn't responsible for himself because there's no law, there's no order. So two radical views are set in opposition. When we get to Melville and and um, Hawthorne and Dostoevsky, we're going to see that those those major writers in the 19th century are all dealing with that conflict. That's our conflict today. In Shakespeare's time, there were only basically well. Shakespeare knew from Aristotle and Plato that there were five forms of political systems. Democracy, or monarchy, democracy, oligarchy, democracy, Wait, tyranny. Wait, that's monarchy, democracy, oligarchy, democracy, tyranny. Those are the five regimes possible. Two, only two of them were really practical at Shakespeare's times, monarchy and democracy. We know from Dante, right, we know from the Divine Comedy, that the origins of the modern democracy were, were republican forms of government. Remember, they came into their own during Dante's time. The people wanted to create these new forms of government. They weren't dependent on the emperor, a king, and they weren't dependent on the pope. They were political systems that were based on the belief that Something should be better left to man. He should do them for himself. He should be left to rule himself as much as possible. And out of that sprung the Renaissance. That was the beginning of the Renaissance in Italy. It took 200 years to finally get to England and Shakespeare. And we know in the modern world that the pressure is all towards socialism. Towards a, a, a system in which the state has control of everything. That man no longer can, is responsible for governing himself, the political system is. So all of those things are set in motion at Shakespeare's time. Okay, so he's on that threshold. Hamlet is dealing with a number of those problems. And let me just name two of them that we talked about last week. One of them is Hamlet has just come from Wittenberg Wittenberg is the university at which Luther taught. He hung up his theses on the Wittenberg gates. It's no accident that Hamlet came from that. It's Shakespeare's way of showing. What's the first thing he experiences when he gets home, besides his mother's marriage and the death of his father? A private revelation. He has an experience that absolutely isolates him, puts him out of touch with the whole political order. Because if it's private and it's elevated above the natural order, how can anybody relate to it? How can anybody make a political move in relation to an experience like that? Okay, it just sets him apart from everybody. I hope that's obvious to everybody, yeah? If he, if he were to act on his uncle, or on his uh, father's um, command that he avenge him and he killed Claudius, you know, and he said, I I did it because my father told me, the ghost of my father told him. Everybody says he's a lunatic. He's nuts. It's beyond the natural order. So Hamlet is dealing fundamentally with a modern notion introduced in the Reformation. That there is this private experience. Let me let me reinforce this just for a second. I sorry, but I, I'm not sure that everybody will make these connections and um, for a Catholic, a Catholic believes in the act in the 
fact of transubstantiation, yeah? That when the priest speaks those words, the body and blood are transformed into the actual presence of Christ, yeah? It's objectively real. When a Catholic takes Christ into him, we believe that he's, that's why I've been saying, where are you when you take, you know, you got to the parking lot, where are you if you've got the host in you? Because with Christ in you, in one sense, you're in the kingdom. You're with him, even while you're walking to the parking lot to your car. We believe that that's objectively true, and we take it as a matter of faith. Yeah? Luther said no. He changed that doctrine and replaced it with consubstantiation. He said that the host is not completely transformed, that the wafer remains. Now, follow this. I mean, this seems like nothing, and yet the implications of it are amazing. He said, no, the host remains the host. It's only when you put it in your mouth as an act of faith that it becomes real. That means after church, you can throw the unused wafers away. You only make it real by your faith. The host remains a ho or the bread, say. Now stop and think about that. Did, when Christ came into the world, did he only bring the God part of him in a way that would undermine his physical presence, his bodily presence? No. They were completely fused, right? Christ is all man, all God. That belief carries over into the host, that when that host is transformed, it's completely bread and wine. Both, not one or the other. Luther changed that in his notion of consubstantiation. So just in a little thing like that, it goes to a matter of a theological doctrine. So this whole notion of what was introduced in Wittenberg through Luther is not small. It radically, it radically unbalanced the West. And we're still struggling with the effects of that today. We still live in a world that's, in, in large, in America, certainly in America, that's a Protestant world. And lots of Catholics are affected by Protestant doctrines, whether they know it or not. So what Shakespeare is speaking to goes directly to things that were set in motion then and that have been in existence for 400 years. And there are lots of people today that would say they have unsettled the West that there are problems still with it today. So my question is, in reading Hamlet, if this is about a Reformation thing, what does Shakespeare say about it? What's the answer to this problem? And to go back to my the serious question that I'm pressing you guys, is God present? And what's he doing about it? If God's at work bringing good out of evil, is there any goodness to be brought out of this at the end of the play? If so, what is it? You guys follow? Okay, let me stop because all of that is background. We're, we're, that's the background. I'm just picking up what we did. I just want to start the play today and, and I want to try to be faithful to my commitment and keep these first few meetings short for you and for me. Um, but let me stop. Any questions about... These are all background things and, you know, that I want you to hold on to when you when you're reading the play. Any questions about any of that?
Heather, I can see that mind of yours working. Something's wrong. So Cut. was Hanley, was he, so Hanley went to Wittenberg, where of course Luther um, was, was there, but was he, was it, was he taught by Luther? You said he was Catholic, so did he go before Luther changed all this, or is that not clear? Wow, tough boy. Um, you're gonna, you're gonna nail me here, Connie. Um, okay, let me try to get my facts straight. You all know, because I've gone over this before, there was a real Prince Hamlet. And I can't right. remember if he lived in the 9th century for, or 11th century. And you also know that for Shakespeare, that's less important than other things. So he's got Hamlet, who, who's an actual historical character, who, went, who lived in the 9th or 11th century, going to Wittenberg. Wittenberg was not founded until 1503, 1505. I can't remember. And we don't know the exact date. All we know right now from the play, because of what the guard said, is that it looks like we're close to Christmas time, that it's winter. Remember the cock crows, and they mention that very often when he crows at, you know, at a certain time of the year, he can send away spirits. Wittenberg was founded in 1503-1505. I'm sorry, I, I can't remember which. Um, Luther hung up his theses in 15, if I remember, 1515. God, I'm sorry, I should get these facts straight. 1515. I'm good enough so that it, you, you know there's a discrepancy. Wittenberg has been in existence since 1503 or 5. Wittenberg okay. hangs up his theses in 15... Luther hangs Or sorry, Luther in, I think, 1509, 1515, I can't remember. Hamlet comes from Wittenberg. Nothing is said about Luther. We can't, we can't say you know, whether Luther taught him or not. We don't, we don't know. And I think Shakespeare is a good enough writer not to make that clear, to leave it so that we don't know. What, all we know is that he went to Wittenberg and he's come home to a private revelation. And th those things we know from the play. Right. So all the rest is left to inference. We just, you know, we have to speculate. We can't, we can't say with any certainty. Connie, does that answer? Yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We can't, you know, it's really, I mean, I, I may be even making a jump here. I, I, but I, if I am, I, I hope you know that I'm making on, on the basis of enough reason. Shakespeare wouldn't do this without a good reason. Um, if you look at his plays, he, he very often takes actual historical figures. But he drives historians nuts. They don't think Shakespeare is a bad writer because he's not historically faithful. Um, he's not interested in historicity of. He's interested in deeper things that, that we have to go beyond appearances to see deeper things. And um, so it, we either say it's just a coincidence, you know, Hamlet happened to go to Wittenberg, and he comes home to a private revelation, or we say there's something to it. And if there is what is there so and I'm saying there is um, um, okay let's go to the play let's go to the play or no any other questions before we God bless um, okay I'm, I'm gonna read passages 
Um, and I'm, what I'd like to do is try to slowly go through some really important passages at the beginning just to get us grounded in the play and then let you guys take off. So tonight I, I want to spend a, a, a good amount of time in the play looking at passages with you, okay? The play opens. Okay, you already know from what I've said, if you trust me on this at all, that the opening lines of every play, in a sense, contain the whole play. Shakespeare, God, he just amazes me. He's enough of a master of an artist that he can, he can use a whole thing um, in such a way that he can use the parts to show the whole. He does that often. And it's true for most of his plays that the opening very often gives away the whole play. We've done that with every one of the plays we've looked at. Merchant of Venice, Othello, All's Well. Here it is. So it begins here. So I'm, I'm going to be putting questions to you guys, okay? Um, so you're all in a hot seat tonight. We're going we're gonna to do this together. You have to help me here. The play opens with Bernardo saying, Who's there? Francisco, nay, answer me. Stand and unfold yourself. Bernardo, long live the king. Bernardo, he. You come most carefully upon your... Okay, anything odd about the beginning? Just the opening lines. There's something wrong. What's wrong? Opening lines. Is it that they're saying, Long live the king, and... Do they not recognize that it's no longer King Hamlet, but King Claudius? I, I'm really, I mean, I hadn't even picked that up, but I think you're absolutely right, Karen. Um, the, I mean, we won't know that until later, right? But he's saying, long live the king. They know that old Hamlet's dead because Claudius has married the queen. Everybody's aware of it. But I just, I, I hadn't even seen that, but I think you're absolutely, long live the king. What an irony. You know, Hamlet's dead. And they're asking that a, that a man who killed the king live a long time. Wonderful, wonderful. There's something else going on. Who's on guard? Francisco's on guard. Yeah. It's a bit of a reversal. Yeah, um, there you are. You're back. I was waiting. You're back. <laughs> Chuck, what's wrong? Can you flesh that out, can you? Well, you would think first maybe Francisco is not keeping watch well because... He should have been the first to ask who's there, right. not Bernardo. Right, right. Is everybody clear? Things are upside, absolutely upside down. If he were on guard, nobody should be getting around him. It's the other guy who's doing that. Did you all, are you all following? That's how subtle Shakespeare, he knows that every little thing, every little thing Matt tells. Every little thing is significant. Can we see it? So there's two. Long live the king and Bernardo saying who's there. When those words should be spoken by Francisco, things are upside down, out of kilter. Something's wrong. And the opening words, who's there? I think I've mentioned this before. They're the opening words to the play because it's asking fundamental questions. Who are the people with whom we're engaged? Do we really know them? Does anybody know the king? Does anybody know the queen? Does anybody know Ophelia? At the end of the play, she's going to die. Ro um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Does anybody know them? They're going to betray Hamlet. He's going to send them to their death. 
Bob, is there any in discussion of Francisco's wording here? Because it's kind of a double entendre, isn't it? Uh, he says, you come most carefully upon your hour, meaning he's really punctual or he's sneaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say that again. Well, when, when Francisco says to Bernardo, you come most carefully upon your hour. Right. At, at, at first glance, it appears that, well, he's commending him for being punctual, but maybe he's observing that he's being sneaky. I mean, if he came carefully, there's more than one way to do that, I guess. Yeah. I'm just wondering if it's been discussed. I, I don't know. I don't know. You may be right. What I mean, to go along with your point, we know that something unsettling has happened for the last couple of nights, that this ghost has appeared, and, <clears throat> I mean, we don't, if, we, if this is the first time we've read the play, we don't know it, but if we're going to learn it shortly, and if you look back at these opening lines in light of what you learn, then you suddenly realize there are all these ironies everywhere. You know, the reversal in the guards, who's there, all of that. Going over to about line 25 or so. By the way, did you guys, did you all get the, um, I don't know if you all have what text you have, but the, the one that I was urging you to get was the um, Folgers. And I'm hoping that it's helping because it's so readable. But I'll just give you lines because I've, I've, I've got a different edition. But So around line 25 or so, Marcella says, Horatio says, "'Tis but our fantasy and will not let belief take hold of him. So they've told Horatio what happened, and Horatio doesn't believe it. He does not believe in ghosts. He says this is all fantasy. They're, so we're already getting a clear picture of distinctions between men. Now let me just put, I'm going to, I may step on some toes here, but don't take any of this personally. How many times in your life have you encountered somebody who said they had a revelation? that they saw a ghost or a spirit or a strange thing happened or something that was miraculous. Um, it, I mean, I, I don't want to go into that. It's just, I, th I think it's a fact of life. C.S. Lewis has got a wonderful essay in which he's talking about historicism, says, if somebody makes the claim to have had a supernatural experience, I'm not talking about them because they're talking about something about which I can't enter into because it's beyond my powers. You know, but we know that very often people with active religious imaginations may see things or not. We don't know. The whole point of this play is that Hamlet's had an experience like that. And there's no way to validate it in the political order because it's beyond the pale of reason. Horatio doesn't believe them. Touching this dreaded sight twice seen of us, therefore I have entreated him along. So they've asked Horatio to come along to confirm what they've seen. Um, a line around 40 or so, most like, it harrows me with fear and wonder. The ghost comes and Horatio's first response is to become overwhelmed by fear and wonder. He's not prepared for this moment. The ghost leaves and then they start talking about Horatio before my God. I might not disbelieve without the sensible and true avouch of my own eyes. So it's only because they appear to his senses that now he can believe what the men had told him. Um, <clears throat> now the interesting thing about line 70 and following, Horatio says they're, they're assuming that the ghost is coming um, as a 
um, what's the word? It's like a bad omen of something that's happening in the state. And their assumption is that it goes back to that time when old Hamlet defeated Norway, the king of Norway. There was an agreement to the omen. Oh, the words are, this is about line 80. That, that can I, that can I. At least the whisper goes on. Our last king, whose image even now but appeared to us, this is the, old, the ghost of the father of the old king, was, as you know, by Fortinbras of Norway, thereto pricked on by a most emulate pride, dared to the combat. So apparently the Norwegian king, um, um, challenged Hamlet. And the two of them made an agreement that whoever was the victor in the battle between them would claim these lands, would be ruler over the lands. And whoever the ruler was would leave, I think, a small amount to the, the one who was conquered. So it says, um, now young Fortinbras of unimproved metal and hot and full hath in the skirts of Norway here and there sharked up a list of lawless resolutes for food and diet to some enterprise that hath a stomach in it. He's serious. He's going to do it. He's a, he's a rash man. Which is no other as it doth well appear unto our state, but to recover us by strong hand and terms compulsory, those foresaid lands, so by his father lost. And this I take it is the main motive of our preparations. The source of this our watch and the chief head of this post hasten rummage in the land. So preparations are being made for war. They've already mentioned that. The assumption is that young Hamlet's going to go to war and Denmark will be at war to hold on to those lands. So that's the backstory. Are they right? Is that what's going on? No, they're not. They're making an assumption that goes to a war and making that conclusion about what's going on now. It's a natural conclusion, but it's not. Imagine, I mean, I'm I want to try to make this as relevant as I can. Imagine if you were in a family or a neighbor to a family of a man who had served in in uh, Afghanistan. And we were and we were we had been at war and this man had experienced war. Um, I I think that's not true for most of it. We we hear about war things at a distance. But if you're a family um, with a man in it who served in war, you know that those things are immediate concerns of those people. If we left anybody behind at Afghanistan, what happened, how many Americans we lost, those are real issues. Um, so in their minds, that's the explanation for what's going on. Um, they're wrong, but that's the conclusion they're drawing. Um, the ghost returns the, again. Horatio tries to hold it, he says about line 125, stay illusion. If thou hast any sound or use of voice, speak to me. If there be any good thing to be done, that may to thee do ease and grace to me, speak to me. If thou art privy to thy country's fate, which happily for knowing may avoid, O speak. Or if thou hast abhorred in thy life extorted treasure to the womb of earth, for which they say you spirits off walk in death. The cock crows. Speak of it, he says, stay and speak, stop. The cock seems to be the reason for his leaving. But he said, if thou art privy to thy country's fate, let us know. Now, remember, the figure before them is the king. 
So they're assuming if, some, if something's wrong, it has to do with a major affair of state, right? An issue concerning the whole, the whole nation, because this is the king of a people. Now, what does this say? Sorry, go ahead. So, no, yeah, what for came sure. To me in reading this is that this is what can be wrong with private revelation, is that when people see it, hear it, hear about it, they interpret it through their own experience, limited experience and through their own um, past prejudices. So that's the issue with private revelation, when there is no authority to say, this is how a revelation right. should be interpreted, right. Right. even in the case of, say, Fatima. This is how revelation should be interpreted. If there's nobody saying that, then everybody's going to interpret it with their own interests, prejudices in mind. Yeah, um, yeah, good for you, Heather. I'm going to just, if I can take Heather's comment, because it's really, that's one of the reasons for the magisterium, or that is the reason for the magisterium. If you've heard what you've said, you've just been given the best defense of why it's crucial that that body exists. Take it away, and fragmenting within the church will increase. Because everybody will be convinced. I mean, they'll go off in, they're already going off in wild ways, but it'll be worse. It's one of the best <laughs> rationales for the magisterium that I've ever heard. You still have to take the quiz next week, Heather. Um, take a look at the men. Horatio says about line 150, I've heard the cock that is the trumpet to the morn, that with his lofty and shrill-sounding throat awake the god of day, and at this warning, whether in sea or fire, in earth or air, the extravagant and erring spirit hies to his confine, and of the truth herein this present object make probation. So bad spirits will flee when that cock crumbs. Marcellus follows up in that. It faded on the crowing of the cock. Some say that against the season comes wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, Christmas, winter, this bird of dawning singeth it all night long, and then they say, No spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome, then no planet strike, no fairy takes, nor which have power to charm. So hallowed, so gracious is that time. Okay, let me stop for a second. Any comments about the religious stances of the men? Bernardo, Marcellus, Horatio. Shakespeare's given us three men. Okay, what can we say about each of them in the way that they're responding to this? What, what, do, what, do, you, what do you call those um, epiphenomenon experiences, you know, in the, the TV programs where they quasi... Paranormal. Para, para, Paranormal? Paranormal, is that, you know, para? Yeah, here are these three men experiencing what in modern terms we'd call a paranormal. It's a supernatural a ghost has appeared. Can we differentiate the men because it's, it's Shakespeare's way of partly showing us very often different ways that people do respond to something like this? Characterize Horatio as a man. By the way, this is Hamlet's dearest friend. He will be here with Hamlet at the beginning. He will be right next to him at the end. Horatio is a really important figure. He's the only man Hamlet gets close to. 
He's really important as a figure. Doc, characterize him. Um, I mean, he's not easily swayed by other people. I mean, he said no to the men. Um, Can you hear Suzanne? Can you all hear? And when he sees it with his own eyes, he doesn't deny it. Um, he accepts it. He jumps to a conclusion about what it's there for. Mm -hmm. um, but I, he, I think he's a good man. Mm -hmm. Horatius seems to have both feet in the Christian world where Marcellus is one foot in, one out. Explain that, Chuck. Well, uh, I'm sorry, the other way around, Marcellus is the more thorough Christian of the two. Um, Horatio, back around, you know, line 125, when he gives credence to the um, really pagan myths of Rome and, and mentions Neptune without even yeah. questioning him, and only part believes what Marcellus has just concluded. Right. By the way, so because we didn't read that, but it's in here, if you look just about one, in my book, it's 112 or so. He says, a mote it is to trouble the mind's eye. A mote, like a something in your eye that you want to get rid of. In the midst in the most high and palmy state of Rome, a little ere the mightiest Julius fell, the grave stood tenantless, and the sheeted dead did squeak. So the account then was that when Caesar was killed, spirits rose from the dead. And he recall so he's educated, he knows his history, um, he can refer to those things. Um, and the moist star upon whose influence Neptune's empire stands was sick almost to doomsday with eclipse. So he acknowledged them, but those are things in literature also. So he refers to them that way. So, but something's happening here because he, he does experience it in his senses and does believe. Um, I don't know what quite to say about Marcellus, except that he relates it to the bird um, um, at Christmas. crowing, you know, at Christmas time. So there's a strong religious sensibility um, in him, it's apparently. He had no trouble believing in him. In fact, he wanted to get Horatio because he was so disturbed by what was going on. So... Um, there's, there's a sense of a background, a Christian background, for many of these men. Hamlet's from um, Wittenberg. Marcellus makes an allusion to Christ and his birth and the crowing of the cock and some of the, I don't know if you want to call them superstitions, but beliefs that have been passed on. So the, there's a religious sensibility, but nobody has experienced anything like this. It's, it's unsettling to all of them. So that's the opening. It's an unsettling. Things are out of kilter. The guards reversed. Um, they're experiencing something they've never experienced before, and nobody knows what to do with it. And it's supernatural. So we were, we are ourselves in this play, right on the threshold of a matter of faith and reason. That's where we're situated. Yeah. Okay. Act one, scene two. The king does what a good king should do. He gives a state of what do you call it? Union. State of the Union, yeah, thanks. State of the Union, yeah? Now, remember, um, old Hamlet was died recently, and the queen now has married his brother. 
when Hamlet comes home, he comes home, I don't know, morbid, but certainly depressed because he honored his father and, and he thinks his mother is dishonoring her husband by marrying so soon. It's really upsetting to him. Here's the king doing what a king should do when he takes power. And I want to read through these lines. And let me just ask the question in advance. So I'm going to predispose you. I shouldn't do this, but is there anything Machiavellian in these lines? Because nobody in the audience is going to pick this up. We should if we're reading closely. Okay, so here's the king. Though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death, the, wait, let me, let me ask, if, what does he do with language? How does he use language? And is there anything Machiavellian in what he does in this state of the union? This is his first moment when he's going to gather a people together at um, a period of crisis. They've just lost their former king. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me read it now. Just hold on. So he says, Though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and that he us befitted to bear our hearts in grief, and our whole kingdom be contracted in one brow of woe, yet so far hath discretion fought with nature that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. Therefore our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we, as it were, with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a drooping, dropping eye, with mirth in funeral and with dirge in marriage, in equal scale weighing, delight and dole, taken to wife. Nor have we herein barred your better wisdoms, which have freely gone with this affair along, for all our gentle, our, our thanks. Now he'll go on and talk about Fortinbras and how important it is to prepare for war, and he'll send um, Cornelius and Voltemann as um, um, in an embassy to deal with Fortinbras. But let me wait on that. In these opening lines, what do you say of him as a king? How would you describe him? Who care? Who started? I cut somebody. Who? Connie, was it you or Karen? Somebody? Sorry. It was Karen. I think it was Karen. Karen, go ahead. Well, the big thing I noted was that he always speaks of himself in plural. He's in we, right. ours. And he's uh, he's glossing up the fact that, that uh, he just married his sister-in-law. Right. What are the implications of the we? Can you flesh that out? Well, I think it's he's I think it's a grandeur thing. He's, he thinks he's got a lot of power and is a pretty grand guy and I don't know. Does he think God's with him or what? It's <laughs> a royal we. He thinks he's godlike. That's is there? I, I may be using Machiavelli, assuming too much here, but you know that. I mean, the basic premise of Machiavelli's of the Prince was, the ends justify the means. He, he's writing a treatise to the Prince on how to rule, and saying that um, sometimes you have to make sacrifices or do things that may not always may not always be acceptable to other people, but um, it's justified for the sake of the end you're trying to achieve, which is some political goal. So it makes the state 
the king and the state, the end of things. The end justifies the mean. If you can just if if the end serves some purpose of state, you can justify it. That means people can be expendable. You know, you can send people on a war mission in Afghanistan and and um, write them off. Um, because of course you're going to lose soldiers in war. Um, there's a difference between losing soldiers in war when they go in the right way and um, and using them without caring, you know, justifying them because for reasons of state. So my question is, is there anything Machiavellian here to Claudius's State of the Union? Remember, one of my opening questions was, Christ said, be watchful, be as gentle as the dove and wise as the serpent, be on guard. We have to know our enemies to live our faith. So um, there are so many ways in which Claudius seems to be doing what a good king should do. I mean, it seems, that's one of the things we have to say in his favor. This is a remarkable piece of rhetoric. I mean, the, the use of we, I think Karen's point is, is well taken. The use of we is a, a case in point. What's he saying when he says, nor, we, nor have we herein barred your better wisdoms, which have freely gone with this affair along, for all our thanks. Let me read that again. Nor have we herein barred your better wisdoms, which have freely gone with this affair along, for all our thanks. What, what are the implications of those lines? Heather, is that your daughter? Tell her she's going to... What's her name? What's her name? What's her name? Her name is Amelie. Amelie. Are you going to be ready for a quiz? No, come back here. Are you going to come back here? Are you going to be ready for a quiz? Here. Hi, Amelie. I'm Dr. Alexander. Are you going to be ready for a quiz with your mom next week? You can help her. Your mom needs help, okay? Are you going to give her the help? Good for you. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> Anybody, anybody's thoughts on those lines? He's dragged everybody into it. Wait, wait. He's putting his thumb on the scale a bit. He's stating something which probably remains to be proven, which is that people really did freely go along with it. But I think once he gets the speech out and no one objects, he'll be able to say it is true. Yeah, what... Anybody else can add to that? Anybody? And you were shaking your, shaking your head, Ann, Yinny? Anything to add to that? He makes it sound like I know you're with me. Right. Well, not that. It's that I'm following you. Yeah. I mean, if anything happens... I'm doing what you would want. If anything happens, he can blame them. They're all impl he, what he does is implicate everybody in what he's doing. I'm following your advice. Thanks for your advice. You want to be a political ruler, manipulate, get everybody. And what does he do with Polonius and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and everybody? He gets everybody to work for him. I mean, watch, watch what Polonius does with his children. It's awful to watch. Everybody's implicated in this. We're watching a totalitarian regime and we're experiencing it on its surface. This is a king saying, for all our thanks, wait, no. 
nor have we herein barred your bitter wisdoms which have freely gone with this offense. So I followed your advice all along for all our thanks. You're all, he implicates everybody. And he's using the we, I mean, as Karen said. And what, what about the way he uses language? What does he do with language? It's amazing. What he's, Shakespeare is just extraordinary. What's Claudius doing with language um, that that's shows what, a, what an amazing king he is and how Machiavellian he is? To be contracted in one bravo, yet so far hath discretion fought with nature that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. Therefore, our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we twere with a defeat with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and um, dropping eye, with mirth in funeral, and with dirge in marriage, in equal scale weighing delight and dole. What's he doing with language in those phrases? Well, let me ask it this way. Um, with mirth in funeral, with dirge in Mary, is Hamlet going to be satisfied with lines like that? Is I'm, I'm, in language, he's reconciling sorrow and mirth. They're going to go, after, after his speech, they're going to go off and drink. They're going to celebrate. They're going to have a party. How happy is, how, how much is Hamlet going to engage in that party? Is everybody following? He's using language to reconcile things that in fact are not reconciled, right? The old kid, there's still people grieving, we know, except as a political leader, as a political leader, what he's doing language is to help people come over to what he's doing. Yes. Part of the state is going to be grieving. The, the people who love, do you think the people who loved old Hamlet are going to be at ease with this? No, but in language, he's done everything he can to get them over. So he's a, he's a master rhetorician. He's using rhetoric to affect political things when they're really at odds with nature. A lot of people are going to be grieving. Some, some won't, but um, he's a master Machiavellian figure. Is everybody clear? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to, I, I just, I don't want to leave him because what he does is extraordinary. And he reminds me of so often what politicians do, the way they get contingencies behind them because of what they can do with language. Their language may be absolutely out of touch with reality, but they can be so convincing in what they're saying that people will move with them. You guys wouldn't know anything about that in our political world today. You wouldn't. God. Okay. Um, Hamlet confronts his mother after this when she and the king try to ease him because it's clear from his expression that he's not at ease with things. Both of them try to talk him out of it. The king, this is stunning too. King, 
Um, um, this is Act One, Scene Two, when the King and Queen are trying to cheer him up. God, oh, just make everything all right. We know people like that who want to make everything okay when things are not okay. That there are things to be dealt with, and people are trying to go around them. The king says about line 90, this is Act 1, Scene 2, "'Tis sweet and commendable in your nature, Hamlet, to grieve the morning duties to your father, to give these morning duties to your father. But you must know your father lost a father, that father lost, lost his, and the survivor bound in filial obligation for some term to do obsequious sorrow, but to persevere in obstinate condolement is a course of impious stubbornness.' Tis unmanly grief, it shows a will most incorrect to heaven, a heart unfortified, a mind impatient, an understanding simple and unschooled. Let me stop for a second. Remember, at this point, we don't know that the king Claudius killed his brother. So hold on to that. If you hear these words as they're presented, what's your response to him as a king? Tis unmanly grief, it shows a will most incorrect to heaven, a heart unfortified, a mind impatient, an understanding simple and unschooled. For what we know must be and is as common to, to any as the most vulgar th thing to sense. Why should we, in our peevish opposition, take it to heart? When bad things happen, we have to move on. Sort of, if I can sort of put it in. Yeah. If we didn't know what we're about to find out, what would you say about the king here? You just think it was wise counsel from a strong king who was enjoining someone important in their regime there to be strong also. Yeah, yeah. We pray that you throw to earth the unprevailing woe and think of us as of a father, for let the world take note. You are the most immediate to our throne. It's absolutely crucial that he do everything he can to get Hamlet with him because he's the heir. I mean, I want to say this is strong. I mean, I just want everybody to look at the political implication here. Hamlet, in some sense, is a threat because he's the heir to the throne. Something unsettling just happened. The king died suddenly. So it's a, it's a time of crisis. And the one person at the center of it is this young prince because he's the actual heir. Claudius did an amazingly manipulative thing in marrying the queen because it gave him the throne. And Hamlet, in one sense, stands as a threat to that action. So I hope everybody's following. We are watching a, a, an extraordinary um, Machiavellian figure at his best in everything he does. It, seems, you, like sorry, he, go. it seems like he's yeah. attempting to make Hamlet feel guilty in his real grief because if you look at it he's basically telling it's okay to act out the formalities of grief for the for the good of the people but it yeah. is not okay for you personally to grieve because death happens and that's just the way it goes so it's not okay for you to take it to heart and grieve from the heart it, but it is okay to grieve in a formal way for the sake of the people. I think he's just appealing to all levels of, you know, he, he's saying death happens to everybody, every father yeah. dies, you know. What he's saying is, 
really you have to accept things and move on, you know, in, in at multiple levels. The the point to underscore that I want to underscore here is that it's really because he says, you know, in the lines that I just quote, and then he says, for your intent in going back to school in Wittenberg, it's most retrograde to our desires. We beseech you, bend you to remain here in the cheer and comfort of our eye, our chiefest courtier cousin and our son. He's trying to do everything he can to make him at home to feel like he's got a father. He's saying all the right things. I think it's important to see what a master manipulator he is. Um, but I, but it's also important to see, and it'll become clear as we go on, Hamlet poses a threat to him. When everybody writes Hamlet off because they're saying he's just mad because he's in love with Ophelia and he's just lost his father, Claudius is going to say, no, there's something else wrong. And early on, he's going to say to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, prepare to go to England. You're going to take Hamlet with He wants to get Hamlet away once things begin to unsettle more because Hamlet is a serious threat. And think about it. At, at early on, shortly, and we're not, we're, we're not going to get there tonight, Hamlet's going to kill Polonius. He, he thinks he's, when he goes into the closet, remember in the meeting with his mother, he thinks the man in the closet is Claudius, and he's already determined to kill him and stabs him, and it happens to be Polonius. Well, the prince just kills a man. How is that for keeping order in the state? Claudius is going to come unglued. I mean, he's got to do everything to get this kid. Right now, he wants him. As things get worse, he wants to get rid of him. So the point that I want to just underscore is that it's really important to watch this man work. Because what he does with language um, is sort of amazing. And in, in one sense, Shakespeare's making us aware of what politicians so often do with language. Often. We live it, that, you know, go back to my question in what way is Denmark like America? In what way do politicians use language to increase our hope in things? Use the word hope, and suddenly you feel like you're in good hands with a Christian. Six months later, watch what happens. You know, I mean, I'm really serious. I mean, people can use Christian terms like hope or love or... Um, but watch what their politics... I mean, what happens with what they do practically in the political sphere. So it's a wonderful... It's a, it's a wonderful presentation of this opening problem that Hamlet's confronted by a revelation and a king um, who's just married his mother. He's not at ease with things. At this point, we don't know what happened. What we're, what we're aware of is this king is doing everything he can to try to make help this kid settle himself and stay with them and, you know, make everything okay, make everything all right. Um, when we're going to learn, things are not all right. Things could not be more wrong. Okay, um, I want to. I want to just. I'm going to go to the revelation, and then I'm going to stop because I'm already past the time that I gave to myself. Hamlet. Um, um, Polonius confronts his daughter and son. His son is going to go away to college, and notice it's in France. I'm not going to ask the question, but you might ask the question, why France? Because it's not Wittenberg. 
Okay, somebody give me a one-sentence answer. Why France and not Wittenberg? What does it say about Alertes? He's going to France. Well, maybe, I don't know. Maybe his, his, um, his sensibility is, is, is more Catholic. I mean, he's going to, the Catholic Church still predominates. He's, we're going to learn shortly that uh, Polonius is going to put Ronaldo on him and spy on him. It's also the center of culture and social life. It's it's a decadent. I mean, there's it is a Catholic area, but it's also it's got its decadent areas already. And, and you know, it's the center of culture and high life. And I think if we know Laertes, I think it's not because of his faith. It's for other reasons that he's going there. But but he he tells Laertes not to spend or not to not to do things that he shouldn't to borrow money and things like that. He's I I don't want to spend any time. Um, because I want to get, we're almost out of time and I want to be careful. And he talks with his daughter and tells her that she's being a fool in loving Hamlet. This is Act 1, Scene 3. I don't want to read those lines, on, but in, on line 106 in Act 1, Scene 3, 106, Mary, I will teach you, think yourself a baby that when you have taken these tenders for true pay, which are not sterling, tender yourself more dearly, or not to crack the wind of the poor phrase, running at us, you'll tender me a fool. He's saying, um, don't take Hamlet seriously. Hamlet's using you. And if you don't, if you don't watch yourself, you're going to make me a fool. What's his, how well does he understand Hamlet? How well does he understand his daughter? How much is he doing this for his daughter or for himself? Is everybody clear? I mean, I just, I read these lines and it's just, um, I have to do everything to restrain myself from swearing at him. You know, I mean, it's just a, and, and all of it is done in the name of state. He seems to be doing things for politically correct reasons. Hamlet goes to the ramparts to meet the ghost. On Act 1, Scene 5, the ghost comes to him and he says, this is about 11, line 11, um, I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night and for the day confined to, to fast in fires. Because remember, he was killed unconfessed, unshriven. So this is why, I mean, Shakespeare is absolutely Catholic in this. Um, he, he, um, he didn't go to hell, but he didn't confess, so he's confined to this time in these fires. Um, Till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away, but that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul Freeze thy young brother. That is, the things that I could tell you from this perspective would terrify you. Um, Hamlet says, O God, the ghost revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. Murder, murder most foul as he is the bested, but this most foul, strange, and unnatural. Haste me to know that, and I with wings as swift as, as um, meditation or the thoughts of love may sweep to my revenge. In the way that we have a thought in one instant, he will be there to avenge his death. That's how fast he'll do it. So the whole, go down a few lines, 35. So the whole ear of Denmark is by a forged process of my death ranked abuse, but know thou noble use thy serpent that did sting thy father's life, where now wears his crown. O oh, my prophetic soul, my uncle. He had the sense that something was wrong, and now he hears this. 
Um, Claudius will tell him exactly what happened in the garden, that the poison was put in his ear. Hamlet will say, O all ye host of heaven, O earth, what else? And shall I um, couple hell? O fie, hold, hold my heart. Imagine what a young man would experience hearing this from the ghost of his father and knowing that the man who's married his mother is the murderer of his father. He hears this news, he's overdone. He gathers all the men together, Marcellus and Horatio, to make them swear that everything that takes place they will not talk about. Act 1, scene 5, about line 135 or so. Um, yes, by St. Patrick, but there is Horatio and much offense too. Touching this vision here, it is an honest ghost that let me tell you, for your desire to know what is between us, or master as you may, and now good friends, as you are friends, scholars, and soldiers, give me one poor request. He, he, he hints at something to Horatio, but does not tell him the substance of the private revelation, right? So it remains private still. They know that he visited the ghost, that the ghost visited, that something happened, but they don't know what was said, what took place. Now, repeatedly under the stage, the ghost keeps saying, swear, line 145, Marcellus, we have sworn my lord already, Hamlet, indeed, upon my sword, indeed, ghost cries underneath the stage, swear, aha, boy, sayest thou though, are thou there, true penny? He's aware that this ghost is there. He can't get rid of him. You hear this fellow in the cellarage? Consent to swear. Propose the oath, my lord. It's almost as if Hamlet's beginning to lose it. He's, he's so insistent that they keep this private, but this ghost keeps <laughs> unnerving things by interrupting. Swear, hic a ubique, or ubic, ubique, or in the Latin, anybody who knows Latin, correct me here. It means here and there. It's another evidence of the ghost reality. He's there one second, he's here. Because remember, ghosts don't have bodies. They're not limited to time and space. He seems to go wherever he wants, wherever Hamlet is. So every time Hamlet moves, the ghost is there. Then we'll shift our ground. Come hither, gentlemen, and lay your hands again upon my sword. Swear by my sword never to speak. They swear again, um, again, and then the ghost says swear a 180, um, he wants him to remember him, remember me, swear. Hamlet, rest, rest, perturbed spirit. So gentlemen, with all my love, I do commend me to you. And what so poor a man as Hamlet is, may do it, express his love and friendship, friending to you, God willing, shall not lack. Let us go in together and still your fingers on your lips, I pray. The time is out of joint, O cursed spite, that ever I was born to set it right. Now come, let's go together. And act, we'll start next time, act two. Polonius will send Ronaldo after his son. So he's spying on his son. He's using Ophelia to spy on Hamlet. We're watching the state power work from the top down so that we're watching something like a totalitarian state at work. Where's, gonna, where's Hamlet going to turn? To whom will he turn? What can he do? Um, does everybody follow? That's the nature of the problem he's in. And he makes it clear, um, he will make it clear that um, 
that he's going to put on this antique disposition. He's going to pretend to be mad um, so that some of his friends will know not to be alarmed. So that so much of what we see will be a facade. It will be a ploy, something he has to do to find his way um, in what's going on. But at this point, in some ways, he's helpless. We will we will we will see when we when we continue in our reading. Um, what can he do? Um, we'll we'll see that he can't act immediately on what the ghost says because the ghost he believes the ghost may be an evil spirit tempting him. He's got a foreboding that there's something wrong with the king Claudius. The ghost just or just told him there. So where does he go? What does he believe? What can he do? How can he act? And yet he does act. I want to say that because the 19th century reading of Hamlet was he doesn't act. He does act. I mean, my God, I, I'm amazed at what he does. But some people think he doesn't act. He does. But in one sense, what is he to do? Where does he, what can he go? If you were in that position, what would you do? So that's the beginning of the play. We are, we are right here at the center of a problem introduced into the center of Christianity by the Reformation a private revelation, a way of looking at faith that places faith above the political order and makes it impossible to deal, to deal with things in the political order. So it directly affects Catholicism. If you, if, if you have to do something as a matter of faith, you know, maybe you're a, you own a bakery shop and you don't want to sell your your goods to somebody, you know, on the basis of a principle. What do you do? Um, so this relationship between faith and reason, between a supernatural order and a political order, is right at the heart of this play. Is that clear? So we, were, we are right where we are in our struggles with our faith in our world. This play has centered us there. I don't think I can say that more strongly. Any questions or we will, we will, let's try to do the next two, next two acts next time. Acts two and three, acts two, three and four. Let's see. By the way, I would encourage you all to read the play. Just get through it. Read it all. Because it, 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 if you do and, you, and we go over acts two and three, you're just going to get a lot more out of them because you've read the whole play. But let's, let's just plan to do acts two, three and four. Let's see if we can do that next week. Any questions? If somebody knows Melody, I'm, I mean, I'm really missing Melody and Michael. I haven't, I haven't heard from either one of them, and they have been with us consistently. But um, if anybody knows them, um, tell them we're missing them and, and ask them to get a hold of me if something's going on. I hope everything's all right with them. They're both missed. So, And if anybody knows um, Maria, I'm genuinely missing her um that young i don't know what's going on with maria but if anybody knows her there's a couple of people that have been with us for a long time now and i hope we don't lose them but no questions um i can't believe that i can't believe okay heather no questions I hope I put, I, get, I hope, can I ask this question? 
I've tried to make this as strong as I can a point of how central this is to our faith and why. Is that clear to you guys? I have a question. Yeah, good, Ann. And we don't really have to resolve this right now, but in reading this, and I guess just based on history, it seems to me that Hamlet's the rightful heir. His uncle butts into that by marrying his mother. It seems to me that even without his father, he would have cause to resent and try to change things. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, you may be right. I don't know what the line of succession is. Generally, in England, it would have been that way. I, let's assume it was that way in, in Germany let's, or Denmark in the northern countries. I'd still say, um, and, and it's, not to, it, it's not to call into doubt what you're saying because let's say it's true. If it is, I'd say it's to Hamlet's credit. It shows him he has no aspirations, ambitions. He's not, if you were in England, the, the claims through the dynastic lines would have been so great. I mean, we know this from England. They, they would have gone to war and they would have had families behind them. But that's England. That's a different culture. You know, it's, it's and very, I think very, that's what I'm confusing. Yeah. In England, it, it would have, there's not a question. And even if somebody had not had ambitions on the throne, but who was heir to it, his whole family line would have been behind him, pushing him into it. There's no way, I mean, the greed and ambition of a family line was so entrenched in England. But I, if, if what you say is true, and it may be, I, I, I can't speak to it, but if it were, the one thing we can say is all that, because Hamlet never makes that an issue. He never grudges, he never says, I'm the heir, I've been mistreated, I've been treated unjustly. He never, that's not, his concern is his mother marrying. It, um, that's his he has no aspirations. He's a, he's a college student. He loves, it's so clear. We'll see it clearly when the players come and he asks the player to speak a speech and he wants him to speak the speech from the Aeneid, you know, when Prime, the king is killed. And the question is why that? How does that relate to our play that the king is killed? You know, Pyrrhus, Achilles' son, kills Priam. And um, we know he's, he's extremely educated. He's He's well-learned, he's a gifted man, he's bright, he's sensitive, he loves Ophelia, he writes poetry, um, he knows theology. He's just a very, he's, he, in one sense, he's, a, he's a, the quintessence of a Renaissance man. He can do everything, um, but clearly he has no aspirations on the throne. Um, it, 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 the way the play presents makes it seem as if what Claudius did did not present a problem to people. Okay. It, what it, the problem presented was to Hamlet because of the marriage to his mother. I've been trying to figure out too if uh, Gertrude is innocent in all this. Wow. Is is she? I mean, did she have an affair with the the brother? Did she not have an? I mean, I've you know I've read up to I think. Um, Part four, but I still haven't come to uh, a conclusion as to whether Gertrude is innocent of all of this or not. Kay, you go ahead. Play doesn't explain, but I have a suspicion Gertrude has something to do, probably, even though the play doesn't explain. Yeah. 
Otherwise, uh, why all this thing happened? Yeah. And, uh, you know, if she was truly faithful to Hamlet, uh, Hamlet's father, uh, I think uh, something, you know, you would see that from Gertrude. Yeah, she wouldn't have married. She wouldn't have married so quick. Number one, and so willingly, that is uh, very strange. I've got, I've, I've got a different. Wait, wait, sorry, I'll come back. I've got a different take on this, and it's interesting to me that the majority opinion is coming from women right now. <laughs> but hold on, I, I've got. I'm going to give a different take, but. Chuck, go ahead. You go, go. Where are you? Do, go, what? Go ahead. You have something no, to say. I, just, I might. Again, I'm not. I've really studied Hamlet in any great detail, but I always kind of thought that he sort of modeled her on Clytemnestra. <laughs> wow. Okay. Let me let me let me offer a different thought here and see and not settle it. I mean, leave it as Anne said. We will reconcile it tonight. But let me throw this out. Wait. How can I do? I don't want to give this. That's not my reading of Gertrude. My sense is she's innocent in the way Ophelia is. And, and let me ask another question. I, I, I don't have any sense that there was an affair, and Shakespeare doesn't say anything in the play to lend that. What I do have a sense is that lots of people in Denmark are easily manipulated, the men and particularly the women, and the women suffer more from it. Gertrude's going to suffer. First. She's going to die at the end. She's going to be killed. And Ophelia loses her life. There's a sense in which, here, let me throw this out, because there's a paper here, but it, there's not enough evidence in the play. I mean, Kay's right on. The, the play doesn't explain itself. We have to take the characters and come to whatever conclusions we can that have the support of the text. Ophelia take, gives up her life. Gertrude goes along with this. Is there something about these northern regimes and the political power that men have that keeps women from stepping forward. Here, let me, let me put a contrast. When we were in, in Venice, in Merchant of Venice, who stepped forward to answer the court ordeal between Shylock and Antonio? Who did it? It was a woman. There was no man in that culture that could have done what she did. In, in uh, All's Well, who stepped forward to cure the king? It was a woman. It's strange to me that in this northern world, the queen is, I'm going to say, is as weak as she is. And Ophelia is. I mean, Ophelia is, I, that she just is such a frail creature. She loves Hamlet. There's a frailty to her. She doesn't have the support of her father. Her father's always berating her. Um, there's, the question for me is, there's something going on in those northern regimes that place women particularly in this kind of situation. I, I myself don't see um, anything of Clytemnestra in, um, in uh, Gertrude or an affair. I, I just see she's a loyal wife, but it just seems to me she's the kind of wife who sort of went along with everything. Her husband dies, she's helpless. There's nothing to do. We've seen how, how masterful, I mean, Claudius can wrap anybody around his finger. And so my picture is he just, he came in, did what he's so good at, but it's also an indication of something lacking in Gertrude and something lacking in Ophelia. That, and 
the only, I mean, the only support, I, I, there's this general weakness. We don't have any evidence suggesting otherwise. And what's interesting to me is that gains more power for me when I set him against Portia, you know, and some of the other feminine figures we see in Italy, when we if you were to read the Italian plays, or even uh, Helena in All's Well. Different cultures can have different effect on women because women are in a particularly vulnerable position. The child bears the. Anyway, sorry. Somebody, somebody had a hand up, or was Heather? Go ahead. Could it be because the northern world, and this is very generally speaking, but the northern world in Europe is is particularly mixed up in the Protestant Reformation. So could we be seeing here a criticism of the treatment of women? under the new Protestant thinking. Because if you think about Catholicism with Mary and yep. the great women saints, like women yep. don't yep. lose power in Catholicism. Yep. But in Protestantism, it's a heavily male-dominated yep. religious society. I've had that thought often, Heather. I can't, we, I mean, it's hard. The pro, I mean, Kay's point was, you know, right on. It, the play doesn't explain itself, but... But one of the things that comes to my mind, particularly when I think about the differences between Denmark and, say, Venice or Florence, or the, is Mary's place. And it's interesting to, to me that while Mary is in the, called the disciple of the disciple, the mother of God, the, the emulation of her doesn't take a political form. Women don't have to go into politics to realize their potential. You know, they can... Um, she makes that clear. Whereas the Protestant world accommodated to the political order. That's the whole nature of it, that it moves to that order. It's that, that accommodation that half compromises the mysteries, the sacraments, the miracles. And here, we're just, the, the women, I, I'm just aware that I, I don't look at Gertrude the way some of you are. I, I see her as just a weak, you know, a weak person. Um, and when I put it together to Ophelia, it's just hard for me to to think about this except in the way that I've been describing and in the way that Heather did too, that you, you, you can't, there's not much support in the text, but it's hard for me not to think along those lines because it's conspicuous that the only two women in the play are both really weak. Maybe, maybe Gertrude was just trying to survive, trying to save her neck. Yeah, you know, you, you, I mean, it, it, she's a queen. She had a royal status. There's there's no king there now for her. If that was a position of dependence, and you know the king's gone, she's terribly vulnerable. For Claudius to come in would. I didn't want to go there. I wanted to save Ophelia for the end, but you guys are spoiling everything right now. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm glad. This is a good start. I mean, we're we're getting at hard things in Hamlet, and they're. They're all really good. They're all really good. It's a. You can see why it's such an important play for lots of modern thinkers, and I think I, I hope you can see why lots of modern thinkers will go around some of the more important points because they don't fit in with modern ways of thinking, um, a ghost, supernatural things. So, okay, um, it's good to see you all. Lori and Chuck, it's especially good to see you guys. It's it's a great. great I feel Thank like you. a miracle's just happened that 
you you dropped out of time and you're suddenly here. It is so good to see you. Just generally good to see both of you. Good to see you. I'll call you. Thank you. Yep. You guys have a good week. All of you stay safe, okay? See you next week. See you next week. Have a good week. Thanks. 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 Um.